Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. And I'm joined by uh, my good friend, Ken Hensley, who's uh, a co-worker of me in the Coming Home Network. But he lives on the, uh, the left coast and I live in Ohio, the heart of it all, as yes. they say. <laughs> but Ken, good to have you join us today. Thanks. Good to be here again, Marcus. This is fun, doing these memorable verse episodes of Deep yeah. in Scripture. I think they're fun. Uh, as I mentioned to Ken before the program, we're going to get back to doing some of the other uh, uh, genres of Deep in Scripture soon. We're going to do a couple of hard verses pretty soon and maybe even do a couple of verses we never saw. Um, and, then of course, there's the uh, being, abiding, and abounding versions of uh, Deep in Scripture, which focus on Scriptures about the spiritual life. But... We're going to do some memorable verses today, and um, as Ken, you know, the you've been on the the, the pallet here before. Uh, I'm going to lay a verse before you that I think is one that we ought to know and memorize, uh, and then I'm going to wax eloquently on that for a while and why I think it's important, then open the door for you to give your thoughts on my mm-hmm. verse. Mm-hmm. Before then, you let me know your verse for the day that, of course, I... Uh, you've kept uh, close to your chest, and then you'll talk about that, and then we'll discuss that verse a little bit, and then we'll see how those two scriptures fit together, uh, whether they do or not, in terms of our walk with Christ. And, and when all I, of this, and all of this, with my not knowing what you're going to talk about, and you don't know what I'm going to bring, so it's there's a suspense in this show. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. It's fun, yeah. and uh, I look forward yeah. to it. And in fact, um. Of course, my job every week is I'm the the one person here every week. I got to come up with a, a verse that's memorable for me every week. And, and fortunately, I uh, I don't have a very good memory, but uh, uh, the Lord has brought to my life many verses that have made a big difference, and I praise God for that. And what I have found when I think about memorable verses, especially those that have been shared by the guests the last couple of weeks. There are those verses, of course, that maybe we've memorized since the time we were children, but there are others that became more important to us as we got older. And sometimes for you and me, they're often apologetic verses because we've used them in our work. Uh, But there are also verses that as I've gotten older and by the mercy of God have grown to appreciate aspects of the spiritual life that I Maybe when I was younger, I ignored or didn't think were that important, and I've learned later they are important. Mm-hmm. That now I'm there are verses that I didn't memorize, like the verse I'm sharing today. I, it's it almost fits as one of those verses I never saw, but I saw it and it was okay. there. I just didn't listen to it. it. Mm-hmm. And now as I'm, as I'm a bit older, I realize you know, not only is this a verse I should have seen and and appreciated more, but to a certain extent, I don't know that from my particular evangelical Calvinist Presbyterian theology I would have appreciated, and maybe you would have from where you came from, Ken. But the verse I'm referring to today is from the second chapter of Philippians, and if you will, it's sandwiched between two sections of Scripture that I'm sure all of us are familiar with. It comes right before the paragraph, the the verse beginning 
with verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be <coughs> grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I read that whole thing, Ken, because we're familiar with that, and that probably could qualify as a verse we ought to memorize. Many of the commentators say that was an early hymn that Paul tucked into his letter. Uh, I disagree with that. I just think Paul was a good hymn writer himself, mm-hmm. and I think he put that wonderful. Because, But we hear that as a description of the incarnation, of our Lord's uh, giving of himself for us. And so that passage is read many, many times. We're familiar with that. We're also familiar, maybe not quite as familiar, but the beginning of that section where Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in the full accord of one mind. Now, mm-hmm. we're familiar with that because from our background, Ken, that was one of the passages we use to describe, well, that's the unity we're supposed to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That th- That's a description of, of Christian unity, being of one mind, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all that was in there. But it's the next verse that I know I read, but I didn't realize its importance as much as I have getting older, and it says, do nothing from selfishness or conceit but in humility, count others better than yourselves. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility, count others better than yourselves. Mm-hmm. Now, I think this is a verse we should have as a banner across the front of mm-hmm. our eyes. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility, count others better than yourself. Now. I'm not saying I didn't know that as a Protestant. In fact, I used to have, once as a visual aid, when I was a youth minister almost 120 years ago, I took these three blocks of wood and put a J on one and an O on one and a Y on one. And I said, how do you spell joy? Well, you got to get J-O-Y in the right order. Jesus, others, and yourself. If you get those mixed up, it doesn't spell joy anymore, and where's the joy in your life? If you put yourself first and then Jesus second and others last, it doesn't spell joy. So you got to get J-O-Y. Well, okay, so I knew this, but the word I missed was the importance of humility, the absolute growing, pervasive, life-changing virtue of <coughs> humility that I don't know that I appreciate as much when I was younger, but as I get older, I look back, There's I don't think anything more important than humility. And in fact, that next section about the incarnation is really about an illustration of humility. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. That was the point of that. The entire incarnation, the point of our Lord's becoming like us, 
mm-hmm. was an expression of his godly humility. We think of God not changing, and when we, especially as the Calvinists, elevating God's omnipotence, omniscience, um, uh, omnipresence, all these omnis to emphasize his sovereignty and mm-hmm. our unworthiness, the idea that God somehow could change is one of those mysteries. The fact that God could become a human being, that's a mystery. But this idea of humility, of God, the creator of the universe, humbling himself, and then as a model for us, because we're to imitate Mm -hmm. Christ. I just found that verse, and and I'm going to just throw two more verses out there that I talk about, but just to show you the illustration of this, and then I'll, I'll ask your thoughts, Ken. Proverbs 22 um, four. We're more used to verse six. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from. We all knew that one. We memorized that. But verse four: the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor in life. And sometimes what we hear is fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. But there's humility, humility, humility. In my mind. Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians when he was complaining about them suing one another. The audacity of Christians suing one another in the courts. And he makes this comment, isn't it better just to be wronged? Yeah. That's humility. That's humility. And one other verse that our Lord in the marriage feast, and, and this is important in our work when we tell converts to come into the church the idea is don't take the front row seat when you come in, folks. Uh, take the back seat. Grow as a layman in the church. Because he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will exalt it. He who humbles himself will be exalted. When we mean exalted, we're talking about the beatific vision. We're talking about the experience of grace in heaven. It involves exa- humbling ourselves in this life and leaving tomorrow to his hands. Your thoughts, my friend. Well, <laughs> I'm, I think that you've expounded on this. Well, your word was eloquently. You waxed eloquent and you did a good job. <laughs> you know, though, when it comes to that passage in Philippians, this, this is what I think when I, when I read it. Let each of you look not only to his, oh, wait, no, Philippians 2. Th- 2, 3. 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. If, if, if we didn't see that verse, and, and, and if it's hard to see that verse, period, you know, uh, I think it's because it's one of those passages that you look at it and you realize it is so far from who you are yeah. that, you know, it, it's just sort of like, I want to grab onto the passages in the Bible that I think I can do something with, you know, like, <laughs> you know, you know, something I can, you know, I, I can tie some pieces together intellectually, or I can say, oh, yeah, here's something coherent, or I can apply it or something. But when you read, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, count others better than yourselves, you're reading something that is just out there, you know? Yeah. And, and I agree, especially as a youth pastor, you know, um, you know, what youth pastor, what young Christian is actually living this out, you know? It's so and, con- contrary to our culture. And it's so contrary to our nature. 
yeah. to our, I mean, to, to our fallen nature. It's so contrary. I mean, think of that last line again. Consider, oh, man, I can't read anything anymore. Um, <laughs> count but, others better. Count others better than yourself. You know, I'm, I'm going to look at you. You're better than I am. I'm going to look at Matt. Matt's better. John Mark is better. <laughs> Mary Claire is better. All the people that, that I work with, I count them all to be better than me. And you realize that that's a humility that is just deep. You know, it's a, wow. It is. It is. And um, wow. when I think about the, 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 one of the many other passages, I, I think the older I get, the more I realize how stupid I am and, I, I, and how I've, I've been blinded to things. Mm-hmm. But um, Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one no. will see the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, well, uh, one of the key elements of holiness mm-hmm. is humility. It, you know, this verse that we're looking at, do mm-hmm. nothing from the selfishest conceit, mm-hmm. but in humility count others better than yourselves. That's one of the stepping stones towards humility. And it's a tough one. Yeah, and... Yeah, and then he goes on with the illustration of our Lord, who, who being in the form of God, <laughs> you know, uh, relinquishes that, comes to earth in the form of a man, but not only a man, a criminal, and a criminal who dies, and not only dies, but dies on the cross. Wow. Became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, you know, so... You know, that, you know, you know. What's hard to wrap your mind around that? Just what you're saying fine. is that what Christ did is he counted everyone better than yeah. himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Creator of the yeah. universe counts yeah. everyone else better. I mean, that's yeah. that's beyond our ability to even go yeah. there. Well, and though that fits when Jesus said, I did not come to to be served, but to serve and to give, you know, my life a ransom for many. I I came to become, well, I mean, there's so many applications of this. I think of the magisterium of the church, too, where we say that priests exist to serve their parishes. Bishops exist to serve their priests. And the Pope exists to serve either the servant of the servants of God. this This is all the same framework. And and, propor- and proportionally, that would be like you deciding to become a worm. Well, it, it doesn't really fit because we're made in the image of God, and we're we're. Right. But it, you decide to become a worm, and then you become a worm, and then you go down under the under the dirt, and you you begin to serve the worst worms there are. The amoebas, the amoebas. You know the oh uh, the um, wow. This is this is really really important. I think count others better. Mm-hmm. Than yourselves, but this idea of humility and mm-hmm. um, all right, I lost my I had lost a train of thought there. I was gonna, but I'm, I'm gonna pass it over. Maybe it'll come back to me because I, I I I'm just finding that this this aspect of our call is something we need to awaken. Oh, I know what I was gonna say when, when you look at history of the church whether it's between laity, priests, bishops, popes, mm-hmm. 
all the people, all the, all the breakaways, almost every single time, it is an ignoring of this passage. Almost every time there's a break in the church, there's a division, there's a schism. It, it's an ignoring of this passage. Do nothing from selfishness to conceive, but in humility mm. count others better than yourselves. Because in almost mm-hmm. every time, it's it's a, an expression of pride. Or I know better than them, rather than mea culpa. <laughs> you're, you're making me think of something I just read the other day. I'm I'm reading a book on on a anyway. Martin Luther. Okay, yeah. Mar- Mar- Martin Luther. It was it, it was talking about him adding the word alone when he did his German translation of the New Testament to to Romans three twenty eight. Man is justified by faith alone, not by works of the law. And when he was challenged on this, his answer I, I, I can only paraphrase phrase it now, but he was challenged. His answer was basically, if any of those buffoons in the Catholic Church want to challenge me. Just tell them that Dr. Luther will have it so. It is enough that I will it. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, now that kind of comes to mind when, we, when I think of We want to hope whoever wrote that down caught Luther on a bad day because you, you, you yeah. would hope he wasn't that prideful. Or that, or, but, or that he was joking. Yeah, or that he was joking, right? That could have been in his table talks where there's a lot of, a lot of these jokes. But, you, you know, the truth is that even in our families— or in our jobs, you know, this idea of of humility as viewing others better than ourselves is a lifelong journey, day by day, and it involves a lot of I I, I messed up there, and that's one of the reasons why in the church we're encouraged every single night before we lay our head in that pillow to have a a moment of reflection on the day. Well, how'd I do today? And uh, it's a be interesting verse to kind of have there by you and just say, well, how did I do on this verse today? You know, did I did I put myself first too often? Mm-hmm. Uh, was I angered because of something? Lord help me, Lord help me. All right, my friend, we pass the mm-hmm. baton over to you. What's your verse for the day? You know, your mind's going to be spinning on how to put these two together, right? <laughs> at, least, at least at first, but okay. Um, the passage I'm looking at could be applied in, uh, strongly in, in, in apologetics as well. It, it, it's a passage that came to my mind, I'm sure partly because I'm in the middle of writing a series for, for our newsletter right now on uh, uh, biographical apologetics on how I came to turn away from the classic Reformed doctrine of justification to the, to the, to the view of, of the Catholic Church. And my passage is, uh, is Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, um, and the verse I'm going to read, although I'm going to kind of talk about more, is the is verse one and two, mm-hmm. which introduces it. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, stop there for a moment. Yep. Okay, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, God has told you and I some things that we can hope for. Well, having faith is having assurance that it's true, okay? It's it's the assurance that I have for the things God has told me I can hope for. It's the assurance I have of things hoped for. And it's also the conviction of things not seen. God has told me some things that I can't see. 
things that I can hope for, things, things that I cannot in this life see. Well, my faith is having assurance that what God has said uh, about the future is true. And having assurance that what God has said to me about things that I cannot see right now are true. Okay? Beautiful definition of faith, of what faith amounts to. Trusting in God's word regarding the future. Trusting what God has said, I can believe even though I can't see it. But then it's the next line. For by it, the men of old received divine approval. By having faith, by having this kind of faith, the men of old, he says, the author of Hebrews says, were approved. Now, here's the thing that got me. And this would fit with the, the one about startling passages. This would fit with the apologetic one. But when you go on to read chapter 11, I noticed every – because he, he goes on to give a, 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 a stream of illustrations, examples of what he's talking about. And what hit me was that in every one of these examples of faith – People do something yeah. by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice, and he received approval. By faith, verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, took heed and constructed an ark. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed, and he went when God called him to leave his home and his family in Ur of the Chaldees. By faith, verse 9, he sojourned. Verse, you know, it just goes on and on and on. By faith, verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up his son Isaac. Verse 23, by faith, Moses was hid, this is the faith of his parents, was hid three months by his parents. Um, And it, it just goes on. By faith, verse 29, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. And okay, here, here's the thing. Hebrews chapter 11 is, is giving us all these wonderful illustrations of faith. And, it, and in every one of the illustrations, it wasn't faith alone. It was a faith that did something. It was a faith that, 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 that um, flowed forth in obedience to God. And and the author of Hebrews is not setting these illustrations forward in order to teach us something that we don't want to Im- imitate in our lives. He's setting them forth as, as, as something he wants us to imitate. Now, the reason this was important to me, apologetics, is because I was, I was uh, you know, uh, weaned in the, on the Reformed theology as like you were, okay? <laughs> and you know this well, but within Reformed thinking, there is a line of thought that goes like this. Not only are we justified by faith alone, in fact, not only do we receive all God's benefits by faith alone, we have to be justified by faith alone. Because if our obedience crept into the equation in any way, shape, or form, I mean, even I remember hearing pastors say, I I don't care one hundredth of one percent, if your obedience, Marcus, in any way, shape, or form became a part of what was required for you to receive God's blessing, then the gospel of grace would be turned upside down. Then salvation would no longer be a gift. Salvation would be something that Marcus had earned for himself, even if only partly, even if it was 99% God's work and 1% Marcus's work, he still would have earned it. 
And Marcus would be able to sit up in heaven and boast in himself for all eternity. And Paul says, not of works, lest any man should boast. And therefore, it has to be by faith alone. And the reason this passage struck me is because when you take these examples that that are listed here and you go back into the Old Testament and you read those stories about Noah being warned and therefore going out and building a boat and being saved through the flood, I mean, do you get the impression that Noah thereby earned his salvation and is boasting for all eternity in heaven about how he saved himself by building a boat? You know, you don't get that impression at all. When you hear the story of Abraham who heard God's call and went, he left. In fact, chapter 12 of Genesis verse 4 says, and Abraham obeyed, Abraham went. Does it ever even cross your mind when you're reading the story of Abraham and, and in fact, him offering up his son Isaac, does it ever cross your mind that because his obedience was necessary, therefore he's, he's boasting in heaven forever, therefore God was robbed of his glory, therefore what we have is a kind of work system operating here where, where Abraham's earning his salvation. The thing is, you can go through every one of these stories in the Old Testament and you realize, well, this is what I realized, Somehow the Bible doesn't think like I was thinking as a Reformed pastor and theologian. Because it, it, it seems rational on one level to say that if you have to obey God in order to receive God, God's blessing, then it's all of works now and it's all tainted and God doesn't get the glory and you're going to be bragging. It, it sounds reasonable to say that, but how come we don't see that in the Bible? Yeah. How come that's not how it plays out? And and the coup de gras, in a sense, is, is Hebrews 11, because this is a, an author in the New Testament writing to New Testament believers. And instead of saying, I don't want you to follow the examples of Noah and Abraham and Moses, because these guys were all under law. <laughs> and these guys all had to obey God in order to receive his blessing. So if you take them as examples, I want you to take them as examples of what not to do or to take them as examples of what the gospel is not teaching you to do. Instead, the author of Hebrews brings forward these examples, and he says, essentially, he says, do this. You go into chapter 12, and he says, here we have this great cloud of witnesses. And so now you run the same kind of race. And, uh, you know, leading up to verse 14, the you, the you quoted, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This was important to me, Marcus, because this oh, this had a, a big part in overturning a paradigm, in a sense, that I had sort of ground into my brain um, that I found is just not biblical. It's not the way the Bible thinks. And, uh, and it also opened the door, obviously, to me realizing, hey, you know what? When Jesus said that in order to be his disciple— you have to believe in him. I have to trust him. And, and I have to take up a cross and follow him. I began, I, I began to think, maybe he actually means what he's saying. I mean, maybe it's really true that I have to trust him and obey. I have to follow him. And this, this is a part of what, what led me eventually into the Catholic view of things. But anyway, what do you think? Oh, no, that's... All those are important for me. You and I come from similar backgrounds, but um, I don't know if our, our personality types are different or our situations were different. I I was far more 
a pastor than I was ever a theologian, uh, even when in seminary, but I was a flaming Calvinist too, and remembered all, uh, truly at, at seminary became very, if you will, indoctrinated to the idea of emphasizing faith alone mm-hmm. and de-emphasizing uh, works of any kind, because the danger of thinking we can earn our way to heaven. I remember someone telling a joke about the the old Lutheran pastor who died, uh, been faithful all his life, and he was dying. He was on his deathbed, and everybody was gathered around. He said that he was in his last words. He said, "I just want everybody to appreciate the fact that I can. I've tried all my life to never do a good work." No, no. Is this true? It's a joke. It's a joke, you know, but I mean, uh, you know, a Lutheran pastor, I've tried all my life never to do a good work. You know, well, that's the extreme. But the reason I emphasized the pastoral work is that was the way it was at seminary. All you're talking about was at seminary. I remember that. But then I got out on the road and I was a pastor of small little churches and I really got to know people that I had to teach what what is faith, just like you're reading this passage. What is faith? And what difference does it make in our lives? And I remember trying to balance the ball between faith needs to be demonstrated in our life. We've got to have a changed life or our faith means nothing. But yet we don't earn our salvation by those works. So there's that, that's a, it's kind of keeping that balls in the air. You know, How do you emphasize the need that faith just as you point out here, mm-hmm. has to be shown. Because, for example, in verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed. Well, what if he didn't obey? What if he said, nah, I like Ur. I'm going to stay here. You know, I got a job here. Uh, you know, I'm not moving. I'll have to leave my job. I got to leave my friends. You know, Lord, that's that, that's fine. You know, well, he yeah, still had faith. He have- feel the faith in God. He still believed God was there because he's talking to him. He believes God's there, but he's not obeying. Faith involves obedience. Faith involves yeah. love. It's a, yeah, and it may it, it may seem like a rhetorical question, but if Abraham had said what you're saying, if Abraham had said, "Look, look, Lord, faith alone, <laughs> I do, I I do believe in you, um, but I'm not going," would he have inherited the land? Or if you if you say to yourself, you know, Noah, the fl- a flood is coming. If you trust trust me, build a boat. And if Noah had said, well, I I do be- I guess I believe you. I mean, even though I'm sitting here in the de- desert, I don't see a rain cloud anywhere. I guess I do believe you, but I'm not building a boat. Then you have to ask the question: Would he have been s- saved through the flood if he hadn't built the boat? Uh, you know, because my my point is that faith and the, the humble, oh, here's humility, the humble obedience that kind of flows from faith, that these, these are two sides of one coin yeah. in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, they are not, in, in other words, the obedience that, that Noah showed by building the boat is not the same thing as a work by which he's trying to earn a salary from God, that he's trying to earn a heaven. It, it's not the same thing. It's not a work. It's not works. It's not works of the law. That's another. That's another whole. Well, thing. and that, our whole background, which, which you were expressing there, in, if you will, reasonable logical steps, because mm-hmm. it was more of a philosophy than a theology. It really was, even though we didn't. 
I didn't say that it was back then, mm. but it mm -hmm. was more of a philosophy. It was a use of logic. If God is totally sovereign, well, then anything we can do takes away from that sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we can do nothing. Well, that's total depravity. You know, it was more mm -hmm. of a philosophy mm -hmm. of a logic, mm -hmm. and we didn't recognize mm -hmm. that. We we just thought we were being true to honoring God's sovereignty, and so therefore, faith alone is is honoring that sovereignty. There's nothing we can do, because if we can do anything, then we take away mm -hmm. from God's sovereignty. We can't do a thing, so that's why it's faith alone. Nothing we do makes any difference whatsoever. Well, that's Luther, that's Calvin, that's the nth degree. But th it, that's why it almost connects with the verse that I'm bringing up, and, and we can kind of bring them together. You just mentioned a, a moment ago, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that that logic I just expressed doesn't have a glimmer of humility in terms of our inability to fully understand the mysteries of God. Because the truth is that God is completely sovereign in everything. But at the same time, he gave us complete freedom of will. How do they fit together? Mm -hmm. It takes humility to recognize it's a mystery. They're both true. And so this idea of faith, it's faith that saves us. By grace through faith, mm -hmm. Paul says, Ephesians 2, 8. By grace through faith, that's that's what it is, not by works. Grace through faith. We know that. On the other hand, if we don't love, we can't be saved. If we aren't, in, we aren't growing in holiness, we can't be saved. If we haven't put others first, we can't be saved. It's a both a hand. And as you said, mm -hmm. it's two sides of the same coin. And how much of what we used to believe as Calvinists was really based on a straw man? Because no Catholic who knew their faith ever taught works right. righteousness. It was never the teaching of the church. It was never. If anything, it was but maybe some poorly catechized Catholics taught, who maybe that's what Luther himself was or others that he's talking about. But the church never Mm -hmm. has taught works righteousness. It's a straw man. And so mm -hmm. let's pull these together because I do think humility, faith, and hope. I think hope, having hope in the assurance of things hoped mm -hmm. for requires this same humility to be able to look forward and trust tomorrow into the hands of God, to fully trust tomorrow to have faith that he's going to fulfill his promises requires the kind of humility that says, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have it all together. I know that I just have to trust God. You know what? I Two, pa two passages uh, just bounced into my head, and, and I think the, these do fit together. I, I think that humility and faith are very closely related because— I mean, arrogance is thinking, well, I know the way, I know what to do, I'm going to make my own choices and whatever. Humility is saying, even though I can't see it, Lord, I'm going to do what you've said, or I'm going to follow yeah. your way. And the two passages are, are these. Um, one is is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the cl a, a classic passage that Paul quotes at least once in the New Testament, where he says, behold, he whose soul is upright in him shall fail 
But the, well, that's a strange translation. Uh, he, he whose soul is upright, or no, excuse me, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The arrogant man shall not abide. Uh, you know, in other words, he, he he's talking here about the Babylonians coming in to destroy the people, and he's making a point about arrogance here, and he basically says, the man, uh, you know, the, he basically says, the righteous shall live by his faith, yeah. but the arrogant man, you know, so, so um, here, here's a passage where faith is being contra- contrasted with, with arrogance, yeah. with a boastful pride and lifting up of himself is the opposite of faith. So faith is not here the opposite of doing anything. Faith is the opposite of an arrogant self-reliance. And one one more, I, I thought of My, Micah chapter 6, where, where we read this famous passage beginning at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body? He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So the thing I love about this passage is, is I think that this is what Paul had in mind when he was saying, faith, not works of the law. Here he's saying, look, he's saying, look, it, 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 what God, what God does not really want from you, what He doesn't need from you, is ten thousand rivers of oil. He doesn't need a bunch of sacrifices. He doesn't need you to go into the. He doesn't need those things. What He needs, Micah doesn't say what He needs is faith alone. Instead, He says what He needs is for you to do justice, obedience, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So, so again. Uh, to me, faith and obedience, two sides of the same coin. And another way of saying that is humility. Faith and humility. Humility means trusting God and therefore walking in the humble step, steps of faith. And what that, and what this way opposes is an arrogant way. And an arrogant way, when it came to the Jewish leaders, could be expressed by, I am a child of Abraham. I bear the sign of circumcision. I keep myself pure. I wash the outside of the cup, you know, seven times a day, and therefore I've got it made with God. So um, in, anyway, these things, it, it, it is so interesting how theology really is a seamless gar- garment. All these things really become one. Yeah, and if you, if you come from the perspective that the way to understand our relationship with God, I mean, the Muslim way is a master-slave. Mm-hmm. And so often, the at least the Calvinist way is seeing God as a judge, and and we're in the dock, um, awaiting conviction. Mm-hmm. We're the Catholic perspective. I'm assuming the Eastern Orthodox perspective, and to me, the scriptural perspective is between a father and a son. I mean, and you know that's where John begins his wonderful gospel that we've been given this power. By God, not because of birth and whatever mm-hmm. we can do, mm-hmm. but by God to become children. And then he mm-hmm. says in First John mm-hmm. three, and such we are, this children of God. So, you know, I was sitting here on the fly trying to think of an analogy yeah. of father and son, 
But, you know, if you want to think about what kind of a relationship should the son have towards his father, a daughter towards his father, um, if a son never asks his father, Dad, what can I do for you? Never asks his parents for just, you know, such that we as a parent got to go to our kids and say, hey, could you clean your room? Could you put mm-hmm. away your socks? Mm-hmm. You know, could you flush the toilet? You know, in other words, mm-hmm. it's back to us always having to do that. Then it's kind of all right. That you want, that's what I'll do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one way. Or you have a son and a daughter that that go out of their way and say, Dad, Mom, what, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? Is that all you got for me? You mm-hmm. got to have more. You know, that's that's a difference in humility it's a difference in love, and it's a difference in faith. Yeah, and let me run with this, with your father-son analogy in a, in a little di- different direction then, because you were saying a moment ago that you feel like looking back now that your Calvinist worldview was kind of a, a more a piece of logic uh, laid down over Scripture rather than a theology that came out of the Bible. Um, it, it, think of a father and son again. Imagine a father saying to his sons, you sit there on the couch— I don't want you to do anything because if you mow the lawn or you go outside and paint the house and stuff, then it's going to detract from my glory. Um, I need to be the one mowing the lawn and doing, I need to be the one doing all the work. I need to be the one painting the house and taking out the trash. I need to do it all so that it's very clear that you're not earning anything from me um, when I bless you and give you your inheritance. And so that it's clear that I receive all the glory for what's happening. <laughs> you can't imagine that. Or a son sitting on the couch and saying, you know, father, you know, dad, I know you wanted me to wash the car today, but look, I want to make sure you get all the glory. So you have to wash the car and I'm going to sit here and, and, and play my video game. You know, it, it's actually in real life. This is why I think that the, that the father son thing is, is a key in understanding yeah. Catholic theology and, and understanding a Catholic view of salvation, because it's actually the other way around. What glorifies a father more than having sons who are like the ones you just described, who are saying, Dad, let me wash the car, you know? that That's what glorifies a father, not yeah. having his sons sit and do nothing so that he can do everything, so that he can, quote, unquote, get all the glory. No, Dad, I, I'm not going to sit on the couch, okay? You know, I, I trust you, and, and you give me, so uh, just give me a list of three things, good. Now, if I do those, before I do them, if I do those three things, are, are you going to guarantee <laughs> that I, when I die, you're going to give me an, yeah. when you die, give me inheritance. I'll do those. I'll, I'll gladly do them, but, but will it, will it, will it make sure, <laughs> you know, and I remember a great French Jesuit spiritual writer who 200 years ago, who was Father Gros, who was one of those priests kicked out of uh, Paris during the French revolution. And he wrote a lot of books 200 years ago and they're great books. But one of those, he said, the problem with, so many non-Catholic Christians that focus all their thinking on salvation and even all their theology mm-hmm. is built around what I need to believe or do to get me saved, and that be- is that in the end mm-hmm. it becomes very self-centered, that everything you do, mm-hmm. it's about ourselves. Even if it's not doing any works, I'm just going to believe. What? So I can be, it's, He said, what you do is you have faith in God, you grow in humility, all these things, and then you leave the future to him. 
Mm-hmm. You know, as a son to a father, if you really trust your father, you're not worried about the future <laughs> because you're trusting your father, that he's a loving, caring, generous, humble person. And that's, of course, human fathers like you and me. We're not the perfect ones. I'm certainly not. But our Heavenly Father is. We can trust the future to mm-hmm. him. Our job is to humbly just trust in his care, in his love, in his providence, as he promises to us in Scripture. And that get, gets, mm-hmm. gets back to your verse, where faith is connected with that hope. That hope is trusting the future to him. Trusting you know, the future like, to him. I guess as we're drawing to a close here, I guess my sign-off, the sign-off that I'm hearing from the Lord is, you know, that this is deep stuff. The, the sign-off I'm hearing is, Ken, imagine if you imagine if you could humble yourself before the Lord, if you could humble yourself before me enough to trust what I've told you about your hope and to trust all the things you cannot see, and therefore to walk in the steps of faith like Abraham did, or like Micah says, to do justly and to be yeah. to, to, to be kind and to uh, walk humbly with your God, or the passage you said, to consider everyone else as being yeah. better. I mean, I'm, I mean, what, when you think about it, what a joy, what a joyful, loving place that would be. And it, it's, it's far from me, you know, I just, it's just, yeah. Wow. Uh, well, we got a long way to grow. I do. You know, that's, I mean, our Lord, wow. he said, love your enemies. That's why don't you pick a ultimate why, why don't you pick a more superficial verse next time? You know? <laughs> just, you know, we could just talk about whether, you know, whether the tribulation is, is in the middle or. <laughs> All right. Next time. We'll, well, I can't tell you. I'm not going to tell you that next time I'm going to talk about Revelations 21 through 3. But I'm not going to tell you that. I'll just spring that on you. All right. All right, my yeah. friend. Thanks, Ken. It was a lot of fun. And uh, Thank I, you. I do hope those of you listening to this, that was enjoyment to you. We'd love to hear from you. If you will, go to chnetwork.org and check out all the other things that uh, Ken and others are doing in their work, in our outreach. Um, and we'd love to have your comments. So once again, God bless you. Look forward to seeing you again next week. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.